Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Wally Miller, and uh, my wife and I have been attending here at uh, Jefferson Avenue since just right whenever COVID first started. And I'm going to be reading today's scripture for you. It is Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look, there, or look, here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And Jesus said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thank you, Wally. That is a long passage. Man, how are we going to get through that today? We aren't. <laughs> so this is going to be a two-parter, so just buckle in. Man, I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas. I know uh, I sure did. It was uh, wonderful to get to take some time off and uh, go, go on a little trip with the family. I very much appreciate your grace and uh, allowing me to do that. And thank you so much, Jim, uh, and the rest of the crew for holding the fort down. Um, I know you guys were in good hands, so it makes it easy to be gone when you have such wonderful uh, people that you work with. So I appreciate that. So it was Christmas Eve just last week. And so when we think about Christmas, 
and what Christmas is, all through the Christmas season, we read the Advent readings, and Advent is all about pointing us to the first coming of Jesus as we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. Now, as we talk about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, I think a lot of times we have this accidental disconnect between the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom. And really, when Jesus came in his first coming as Jesus, the Messiah, he brought in the first coming of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God was established, or uh, the fancy word that they say this in the, uh, in the, the biblical scholars, the way they talk, they say, he inaugurated the kingdom in his first coming. It was the beginning. And we look around and we think, yeah, yeah, you know, the first coming of Jesus was the bringing of the kingdom. And as we've been in the book of Luke, as it was pointed out to me this morning, for probably total over a year at this point, even though we took the summer off, uh, we've been in Luke for a long time. As we've been in the book, we've seen over and over again that the, the book of Luke describes the kingdom of God as something that has come and something that is coming. There is an already and a not yet component to the kingdom of God. So as we reflect on Christmas and we think about the coming of Jesus and we think about what Jesus has done for us in our lives, we think, yes, the kingdom of God is here. But, but man, I still struggle with sin. I still have this thing that I find myself repenting of over and over that I just haven't been delivered from yet. I still find myself wrestling with these things in my life that as much as I give them over to the Lord, they still are a burden to my soul. The kingdom of God has come, yet my loved ones still die. I still suffer. I hurt. We look around and we say there is a great amount of injustice in our world. We look at the oppression of the weak and racial uh, uh, racism, whatever, that's that we're experiencing in the culture around us. We look around and we see the uh, rampant sexual immorality and greed that, that we deal with in our culture. We see stories or hear stories of domestic violence. We see all this uh, overindulging in, in what the pleasures of this world are. And we think to ourselves, the kingdom of God has come, but come, Lord Jesus, come. So we, we know the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ is it impacts our lives, but there's this part of us that goes, this isn't it, is it? Guess what? It's not. It's not it. The kingdom has come. We are living in the kingdom of God right now, but there is more to come. There is this mystery that surrounds, surrounds where we are now. As we experience all these hard things, as we 
uh, experience the consequences of sin as we deal with sin itself, there is a mystery. How has the kingdom of God come, and yet what does it mean that it's still coming? That mystery is there, but here's what I want to tell you. There is going to be a day when the mystery is over. When the kingdom of God comes in such a way that everyone knows. No one will be standing around looking at the observable things in this world and saying, where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God will come in a powerful way and the mystery will be over and everyone will know. So as we begin today, I want to do something a little different. We are, are going to continue our working through uh, Luke 17, uh, the, the passage that, that Wally read for us earlier today. That is our base text. But as we look at this passage in Luke 17, uh, it, it kind of carries the weight of most of the New Testament. So today, we're going to be all over the place, okay? So buckle in, okay? We're going to be all over the place. But because of that, that, that the fact that this really is a whole New Testament idea, I actually want the first passage that we read today, it's going to be a long one, and if you want to know more about this, you should crash the, the First Thessalonians class next week, because they're literally going to be in this passage next week. Uh, but we're going to read First Thessalonians chapter 4, all the way through 5.11. You're thinking, oh my goodness, you had Wally read that long passage, now you're going to read another one? Yes! That's why it's a two-parter. All right, so let's go ahead and look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as we read this, I want you to think about what we read earlier in, in Luke 17. And I want you to look at the language. I want you to see how similar Luke 17 is to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And I think you're going to be like, whoa, I never saw that before. Or maybe you're great Bible scholars and you're like, yeah, Braden, I, I've known this for a long time, but thanks for reminding me. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. It says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And Paul is using the sleep there as a metaphor for dead. That you may not grieve as others, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, remember what I said just a second ago. Put your finger there in, in uh, verse 17. That there's going to be a day when everyone will know when the kingdom of God has come. They will know. How do I know they will know? Because it's going to be loud. It's coming in with the voice of an archangel. It's coming in with the sound of the trumpet. This is not a secret thing you will know. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with the Lord. I'm sorry, with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18. Encourage, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers... 
you have no need to have, any, to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as, bro- as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, this passage is very interesting to me. It says in verse eight, uh, 418 and in 511 that we are to encourage one another with this teaching. We need to look at this and build each other up. These words are meant for the good of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So what is Paul encouraging us to build each other up with? Well, first, he encourages us to encourage each other with the hope that Christ will return. Amen? So he came once, we should encourage each other with the hope that Christ will return again. That is something that we are commanded to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Point each other to the hope that Christ will return. He is coming back. His first coming was not his only coming. He is coming again. Second, we are to encourage each other with the hope that when he comes back, he's coming back for us. Amen? That's a good thing. He's coming back for us. Whether we're dead or whether we're alive, he's coming back for us. The dead in Christ will be raised from the grave, and then when Christ comes back, those who are alive will come to him as well. All those who are in the church, who are part of the body of Christ, will come to him in that last day. But there is a third thing we are to encourage each other with. So first, encourage each other that Christ will return. Second, encourage each other that we will uh, be gathered uh, as the body of Christ, both the living and the dead to him. He's coming for us. And third, this one's a little weird. Encourage each other by the hope that God will bring judgment on sin and evil. All that observable sin that thing that doesn't set right with us. When we think, I'm in the kingdom, the kingdom is here, but sin persists, injustice exists, death exists, pain exists, the consequences of sin exist. 
God's going to make all that right. Encourage each other with the hope that someday in Christ's kingdom, we call that Christ's kingdom consummated, the fullness of the kingdom of God returned, all that sin, all that suffering, all that evil will be destroyed. So what are we to encourage each other with? Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back for us. And we should encourage each other with the hope that sin and evil will be undone. I want you to look back again at uh, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and also verse 9. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. As you look around, everybody's like, it's all fine. It's all fine. It's all good. What's going to happen? Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Encourage each other with that that God's going to bring justice on those who are opposed to him. And that God will bring justice on those who are opposed to his people. And look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he tell us there? That if we're not in the kingdom, if we're not part of his kingdom now, then we're destined for wrath. But because we have obtained salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are saved from the wrath of God. Encourage each other with these words. God is coming. He is coming to bring judgment on the earth. Sin will be eliminated. Evil will be destroyed. God's wrath will be poured out. But encourage each other with this. There is hope in salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? So this this destruction will come upon them like a thief in the night. So Paul encourages us to keep watch for the second coming of Jesus. I heard one commentator say this, as the church, we should be on alert, just not red alert. And I like that because the idea here is this is us being watchful, waiting, anticipating the coming of the king. The kingdom in its fullness is coming. This is a good thing. So we don't need to be on red alert. The rest of those who are going to be experiencing the wrath of God should be on red alert. But they're not. Instead, they are pretending that everything is okay. They're pretending that everything is fine. And one of these days, the wrath of God is going to come like a thief in the night. Now, where did Paul learn this? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 says that he learned this from a word from the Lord. So I have zero problem saying that this is a special revelation given to Paul by the Holy Spirit. But what I hope we see today 
is that Jesus taught the same thing. He taught the same thing in Luke chapter 17. They're like, you can lay them on top of each other. It's crazy. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. And I hope we see how we can encourage each other with the hope that Jesus brings in each of his comings. Now, today what we're going to do is focus on the first hope. So Jesus brings two hopes with his coming. Jesus' first coming brings hope for all. Okay, Jesus' first coming brings hope for all. Jesus' second coming brings hope for citizens of the kingdom of God. So the first coming is hope for all. The second coming is hope for the citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I know we're not all here today because it's a holiday weekend and many of us are traveling. But my, my, my hope for you guys is remember today as we talk about this next week. Because there's going to be this, this pull where we're going to want to talk about everything we talked about this week again next week. And I'm feeling the pull this week to talk about everything I want to talk about next week this week. But we have to deal with them separately because time simply won't allow This should be a two-hour sermon that we digest at once, but I'm not going to do that to you, okay? So what we're going to look at today is what his first coming brings, and his first coming brings hope for all. Now, one of the things that was beat into my head as a seminary student is that the point of the text should be the point of the sermon, okay? You read the text, the point of the text, that should be the point of the sermon, Now, the idea behind that statement is that good students of the word want to let the text guide us so that I don't come to text with my preconceived ideas and force them into the passage. I don't think I did that today, okay? But as we deal with this text, this is a New Testament principle that is foundational to all that we believe. So because of that, we're going to be all around Luke 17, as Luke 17 is a reference to the bigger picture of the mission of Jesus and what his first uh, coming has accomplished and what his second coming will accomplish. So I think it's appropriate today to look beyond our text to see that bigger picture of his first coming and next week at his second coming. All right, so let's go ahead and, and, and really begin to dive into the passage. Let's look at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. All right, back in Luke. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, what we read earlier today uh, presents the text in in a bigger way. And if we were to continue to move into the the rest of the passage, we're we're going to see the language change where here Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and here he's talking about a present reality. And in the next section, we're going to see Jesus address the disciples And as he addresses the disciples, what we're going to see is that Jesus really is talking about a future reality. And as he's talking about this future reality, it's almost like he keeps looking over his shoulder back to our present reality. Okay, So this passage deals with the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. Today, though, what are we focusing on? The first coming. So let's look again at our passage. They say, when is the kingdom of God coming? And I like this. 
They ask the right question. They don't say, hey, Jesus, is the kingdom of God coming? They don't wonder if. They seem to agree that Jesus, or not that Jesus, they seem to believe that the kingdom of God is going to come. So they want to know when. Now, how does Jesus answer their question? Does he answer their question in the way that they expect? No, of course not, because that's what Jesus does, right? He answers it in a way that makes them think and helps us out. They want to know when, and Jesus says, it's in the midst of you, all right? He says that the kingdom that has come is not one that can be measured by observation. You simply can't point to it. It isn't measured by geography. Now, I don't, I, I can't, back in March, we were in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and in March, Jesus was sending out the disciples to preach the coming of the kingdom of God. So when, when I preached that message in March on, on chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, we kind of did a dive into what the kingdom of God is. So if you want to go back and listen to that message, it's online, uh, you can find it and get a, a bigger context here. But we talked about the difference between a static kingdom and a dynamic kingdom. I don't know if that makes any bells go off. But when the Pharisees asked this question, when is the kingdom of God coming? What they were looking for was when is the static kingdom of God coming? Now, when we say static kingdom of God, what do we mean? We mean something very similar to what we would experience in our world today. The st a static kingdom can be anything. Like, I don't know, think about the classic kingdoms of the 1700s and 1600s, like England and Spain, Portugal, France, whatever. All right, so think about those kingdoms. Think about dynasties. What did they have? They had a ruler. There was a king or a queen, right? They had borders. And if you were in these borders, then you were under that ruler. You were in that kingdom. There were qualifications to have citizenship in that kingdom. There were laws that governed that kingdom. Now, you were either in the kingdom of England or you were in the kingdom of France. Right? You were under one of those kingdoms, right? Whatever, name the kingdom. It doesn't matter. That's not my point. So that is the idea of a static kingdom. So what the, the, uh, the Pharisees were looking for when they say, Hey, Jesus, when's the kingdom coming? What are they looking for? They're looking for signs... They're looking for signs of a physical, earthly kingdom. What they want to see? A king. What they want to see? An army. What they want to see? Borders. In their mind, they wanted to know, when are we going to be liberated from Rome? When are we going to be our own people again? When are we going to get back to the way things used to be under David? And Jesus gives them an answer that's obnoxious to them. He says, the kingdom is in the midst of you. It's not something that can be observed. I'm bringing in a dynamic kingdom. I'm bringing in a kingdom that transcends rulers. I'm bringing in a kingdom that transcends lands. I'm bringing in a kingdom that even transcends the laws of men. They may say you're not allowed to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But guess what? You can. It transcends the authority of earth. His kingdom is bigger. And guess what? It's already in the midst of you. 
Now, it's in the midst of them in two ways, right? On one way, who are they talking to? They're talking to King Jesus. It's in the midst of them. You're looking at the, the ruler, the monarch. Here I am. It's in the midst of you. But also, who's in charge of their land? The Romans. The kingdom is in the midst of you. Rome does not have to be overthrown for the kingdom to come. The kingdom is in the midst of you. Jesus has come not to bring a static kingdom, but to bring a dynamic spiritual kingdom. Jesus comes to forgive sins. Jesus comes to deal with evil in the hearts of the individuals. He came to seek and save the lost and to reconcile the sinner back to God. King Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is our, our first hope? Our first hope is that uh, is, is for all, the first hope is for all in Jesus' first coming. Now, what is his hope? What is our hope that comes in Jesus? This, this first coming, this dynamic kingdom, is Jesus bringing salvation for all who would believe from the grip of sin and from the judgment that we deserve. What I want to do for the next few minutes is just look back at some passages throughout the New Testament that show what the mission of Jesus is. What did his kingdom come to do? It wasn't to overthrow Rome. It was to overthrow the sin in the hearts of the people. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we may be saved, obtain salvation from the wrath of God. I'm going to take a quick little rabbit trail. I don't know if i got time for it or not, but we're going down this road. It's not in my notes. When we think about salvation, we often think about being saved from hell, right? I'm saved. I'm saved from hell. I'm saved from the power of Satan. That's wrong. You're saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being poured out on sinners. The wrath of God is bringing justice to the world. Hell has no power over us. It is the wrath of God. It is an expression of the wrath of God. So we're not being saved from hell. God's coming to bring his judgment. And this is why this is so important. In Jesus' first coming, he comes to offer hope for all. That by faith in Jesus, we are saved from the wrath of God. Now let's look at how the New Testament presents this. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, here's the mission of Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and what? Give his life as a ransom for many. What did he come to do? What was his mission? His mission was to be a ransom. Now, he didn't just say this in Mark 10. He said the same thing in John 10. John 10, verse 17 and 18 says this, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you... I'm just noticing this. I literally copied the same verse in twice. You can look up John 10, 17 through 18 on your own. <laughs> it says the same thing. All right, now let's look at, uh, let's continue on here. Man, I'm embarrassed. You know, it's, it's, 
I've read this no these notes like 18 times, and how did I not see that I literally copied and pasted the same thing in twice? All right, just uh, pray for my sanctification. All right. Now, in the Christmas story, here we are in the Christmas season, right? In the Christmas season, uh, Matthew gives us, Matthew gives us in chapter 1, the mission of Jesus. All right, so in the story of, of, of the first Christmas, we have this in Matthew 1, and it's not Mark 10 again. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, I just, king, right? We got some king implications there. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. He will save the people from their sins. What's the mission of Jesus? What is his first coming about? He's coming to bring salvation. John chapter 1, verse 29, is uh, John the Baptist's uh, proclamation of who Jesus is. John 1, 29 says this, The next day Jesus, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. What is the mission of Jesus? He's come to take away the sin of the world. Now back before Christmas, we did a little recap of the book of Luke showing that Luke connects physical healing to a spiritual healing. And you'll remember we went through several stories. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man, he said, that he healed him so that we might know he had the authority to what? Forgive sins. Similarly, he forgave the sins of the sinful woman who washed his feet. And in Jesus' first teaching in the book of Luke, when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth, he read from the book of Isaiah, and he, uh, as he read it, he came to this passage where he said that he came to proclaim good news to the poor, that he has sent me, God has sent him, Jesus, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the mission of Jesus? He came to set us free, to set us free from sin and death. Now, as you look around at the world around you, what do we see? We already talked about this. We see the effects of sin. It is everywhere. It's everywhere. What has he come to do for us, for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ? He has come to give us forgiveness and to deliver us from the continuation of sin in our life, to set us free, to give us liberty from sin. Look at how Paul unpacks this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, previous life, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. What, 
Put your finger there. What, what's, the, uh, what's the implication? That this is what the rest of the world is still in. But because you are in Christ, this is your new reality. The spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, right? This, this idea, that's what you were doing before. You were once walking in that. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, what? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before we place our faith in Jesus Christ, how are we described? As following the prince of the power of the air, walking in the course of the world, us sons or daughters of disobedience by nature children of wrath. Paul is describing our contribution to a sinful world. I want you to chew on that for a second. Paul is describing our contribution to a sinful world. We are by nature, what? Children of wrath. Apart from Christ, what do we deserve? The wrath of God. When we look around and we see the, the injustices in our world, when we see uh, the oppression of the weak, when we see... Uh, greed, and when we see sexual immorality, when we see all these things, we think it's them. It's not them. We're part of the problem. We're part of the problem. Them is us apart from Christ. What is the only difference between them and us? Christ. That's it. We are by nature objects of wrath. That is uncomfortable. But Jesus came that we might have hope that that reality does not have to be our reality. That's not the end of the story. Jesus' first coming came to give us hope. That that part of the story, by nature, children of wrath, could be undone. Listen to how Paul describes this similar situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This idea of what we were. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. That is the past in Christ. Is that our future? No. That is the past. Jesus came to liberate the captives. That does not have to be our future in Christ. 
So, so what are we taught, though, about this passage right here? What are we taught about those who are unrighteous? What's it tell us? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and how does Paul describe these who were once unrighteous? He describes them as participants in the kinds of sin that corrupts our world. And then we have verse 11, which talks about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ as we are washed clean, as we are sanctified, as we are made holy, as we are made righteous, not of our own righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is placed over us. We are taken out as ones who are by nature object of wrath, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that by his righteousness, we don't have to experience the wrath of God. That is God's grace and his mercy. I love the way that Paul continues where we were earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. So if we had kept reading instead of going off to that passage in 1 Corinthians, we would have continued in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in his mercy, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, all right, present reality in the midst, the kingdom, right? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. He saves us now in the first coming of Jesus, in the kingdom that is in the midst of us, in this hope that is for all. He saves us now because the wrath of God is coming. And next, I told you this was going to happen. I'm going to want to talk about next week. And next week, as we look at the rest of our passage in Luke chapter 17, what we're going to see is that he draws out this picture of Noah. And Noah... There's a flood, right? And everybody dies except those who are in the ark. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our ark of salvation. The flood is coming. Destruction is coming. But those who are in the ark of Christ are saved from the coming flood. This is the, first, uh, the hope of the first coming of Jesus. The door to the ark is open. Behold, he stands, he asks, he knocks on the door, right? That's, that's what we have. We have an opportunity to come into the kingdom. This is the season where the kingdom of God is open to those who would believe. He sent Jesus that he may show us his grace and mercy, being rich in mercy. We are by nature what? Children of wrath, what do we deserve? To be destroyed with everybody else. But because God loves us, because of his great mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive? He did. Whose gift is it? His gift. Not a result of our work, but 
fully accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. This is the inauguration of the kingdom. This is his grace and mercy now. So that in the age to come, when his kingdom comes in full, we can live in the immeasurable riches of his grace forever. Why do we need his present grace today? Because his wrath is coming. Now is the time to become a citizen of the kingdom of God, not by our works, but by faith in the works of Jesus Christ. We need his grace and mercy now because of what's coming in the future, which we're going to talk about more next week. So let's look back at Luke chapter 17. We're going to read verses 22 through 25. And this is as far as we're going to get into Luke 17. So he's talking to the Pharisees, the kingdom's in the midst of you. Then he talks to the disciples. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, what I want you to see here is that Jesus does something. As he talks to the Pharisees, he talks to them about the present. They were looking for something future, and Jesus says, No, it's here now, it's in your midst. It's here now, don't miss it. But as he talks to his disciples, he says something. The kingdom is here now. The kingdom is here now. But as you're living now in the kingdom, there's going to be this part of you that longs for the day when the days of the Son of Man. Hey, there's something going. Kingdom's here now. Son of Man is Jesus. Jesus is here now. I'm going to long for one of the days of the Son of Man. What is he talking about? This is a dual reality. For the disciples, as they move forward, as they move into time, they're going to be looking back and they're going to long for one of the days when Jesus was with them. But also, but also, as they are in these days after Jesus' ascension, they're going to be longing for the days when he returns. Their eyes are going to be set forward, longing for one of the days of the Son of Man. And people are going to say, hey, here it is. Here it is. It's over here. This, this is it. It's time. It's now. And he says, don't go after them, because when the Son of Man returns, it's going to be like a flash of lightning in the sky. And we're going to get into more into this next week, but I want you to think back to what we read in 1 Thessalonians. What did we see? It comes with what? The voice of an archangel with a trumpet sound. When Jesus returns, are people going to miss it? No. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be like lightning. Have you stood outside in the dark when lightning flashes? You know. It's not a secret. If somebody says, look over here, that's not it. Because you'll know. So Jesus says, hey, the future's coming. You're going to long for that day, just like we long for that day now, when all things are made new, when all things are made right, when sin and evil is eliminated. We're going to long for that day. But first, but first, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. But first is the inauguration of the kingdom of Jesus. 
But first, there must be hope for all. As Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave on the third day, that those who believe may be saved. That we may enter the ark from the coming of God's wrath. I want you guys to, to, to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 with me so that we can get an understanding of what this anticipation may look like. This, you may long for the days of the Son of Man. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, but a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has Jesus not come a second time? Why are we still living in the kingdom inaugurated? Because he's not wanting that any miss this opportunity, but that all should reach repentance. We are in the season now of hope for all that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. Next week, we're going to talk about a little more saved from what? And next week, we're going to talk about why this is hope for us. But what I want us to see is Jesus' first coming had a purpose, and that's to deliver us from sin. Sin in our present life and to deliver us as we climb into the ark of Christ from the coming wrath of God. This thing that we all deserve. This thing that none of us can escape on our own. But because of faith in Jesus Christ, we know that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. That he suffered many things. What we should suffer. What our sin deserved was poured out on Christ. That's why he died. To satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. So that through him, we may have peace with God. And he was raised from the dead on the third day to show that sin and death cannot defeat him. His kingdom a kingdom, is a kingdom of life for those who trust in him. That's why Paul says, encourage each other with these things. Our job as fellow believers is to remind each other of the goodness and the grace of God. Is to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That we are no longer slaves to sin. But he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's our job as the church of Jesus Christ. To, to point each other toward the hope of salvation. That, that even though we were destined for the wrath of God, God intervened by sending his son Jesus Christ to earth. How much value does he place on you? So much that he sent his son to die in your place, that by faith in him you may obtain salvation. So this is where I want to close the message. I can't wait next week to talk about the other way we get to encourage each other, and I keep wanting to do it. We're just going to have to wait for next week. The hope that we have today is for all. So my question to you is where is your hope?
Ephesians chapter 2 says our hope cannot be in our own works. Our hope needs to be in the work of Christ that he gave to us as a gift. So if our hope is in ourselves, we've already read what the Bible says about our own works. and We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't bring life to ourselves. But if our hope is in Jesus Christ, the resurrection, he is the first fruits of our resurrection. Our, our resurrection spiritually as we are brought back from, from the, our dead and, and our death and, and sin, but our future resurrection and our hope of heaven for eternity. So my question to you is, is, again, where are you placing your hope? Is your hope in Jesus or is your hope in something else? If your hope's in, in something else, then Scripture says it's not going to be enough. The only one who was enough was Jesus Christ. So if you are here today and you want to know more about what it is to place your faith in Jesus Christ, then come, find me. I would love to talk with you more about what it is to follow Jesus and place your faith and hope in him. If you're here today and you have just struggled and you have just hurt, I want to remind you of what Jesus offers. He offers freedom from that same cycle of sin that we find ourselves in. He offers us freedom from the guilt that we feel from the things that we've done. Not, not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ accomplished for us. So as we sing these last two songs, the altar's open. Just come and, and do business with the Lord and how you uh, feel the Lord is, is uh, calling you or directing you. If there's needs that you need to lay down before the Lord that have nothing to do with what I preach today, then this is our time to do that. However the Lord is working in your life, this is our time uh, to talk with him. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you for your love. We thank you and praise you for your mercy and your kindness. Lord, I pray that you would be our hope, that we would see that your first coming uh, was an open door to the ark of salvation. Lord, help us to, uh, to, to see your grace and mercy, to see your love for us, that we would celebrate it, that we would be people of joy because of what you've done for us and the love and the mercy and the kindness that you've shown us. Help our response as the people of God to be a joyful people. It's in your name I pray.